0: If you have a gut feeling and a doctor brushes you off, make sure that you're being heard. And if you feel as though they're being dismissed, find a second opinion.
1: When it comes to your health and the health of your family, there is no shame in asking for a second opinion. Trust yourself and raise your hand.
0: There's always going to be situations where there's negligence. Medical errors occur. But I just really wish that in general, not just in obstetrics. We start listening to our mothers.
1: According to a recent survey, only 19% of managing partners in US law firms are female. We would like to see that change. Hello, and welcome to Law Her, the show where we celebrate the trailblazing attorneys and entrepreneurs who are changing the game for women in the legal field. Inspired by their stories, learn from their mistakes, and look forward to the future they're helping build for the next generation of women in law. I am Sonia Palmer, your host, and VP of operations at Rankings, the SEO agency of choice for personal injury lawyers. This is LawHer. Principal owner at Lero Weiler Law, Marley advocates for families and children whose lives have been wrecked by medical malpractice. Focused 100% on litigation, she has spent the last eight years providing clients the compensation needed to care for the ones that they love, often for the rest of their lives. We discuss how medical malpractice suits can help change the medical industry for the better. Women perform the bulk of unpaid labor in the home. We look at ways to seek financial compensation for caregivers and explore non-economic damages. We open the conversation to gender bias in med mal, pumping while in court, and how to recalibrate from the daily trauma of litigation. As a child in a small town, Marley was presented with typical career paths like lawyer or doctor. Her desire to help others combined with an ability to speak publicly made law school an appealing career choice. But all of that changed when she went away to undergrad at Boston University. Let's dive in.
0: So I went from a, a school with 200 students in my class to a school where there's 20,000 undergrad students students. So things kind of changed and I wasn't a hundred percent sure what my trajectory was going to be. My brother is actually also a lawyer. He is a five years older than me. And so he had said, you know, this is something that you need to be really dedicated and it's not for the faint of heart. You know, it's, it's a lot of work and it's a big time commitment. You know, why don't you just go work for a little while and see if that's something that, actually piques your interest. And so that's exactly what I did. I went and I worked at a law firm. I started as a legal assistant and then I moved up to paralegal status and I worked for two years. And that's really what solidified for me. This is what I want to do. It was a personal injury firm and I just saw the outcomes and how you can actually make a difference in somebody's life. So... That was what brought me to law school. And I think it was, for me personally, the best decision, not only to decide, yes, this is what I want to pursue, but also getting into that work habit of of kind of nine to five, right? And so that's really how I treated law school. I got to school sometimes as early as 7.30, eight o'clock, even if I didn't have a class until noon uh, and I would do my work go to the classes, stay there, continue to do my work. And then I would be home by six and maybe I have to do a little bit more reading, but that was pretty much it.
1: I feel like we ask a lot of like high school graduates, you're 18, now choose a career that you're going to have for the rest of your life. (laughs) So I think to choose an experience, go see how you feel about this, you know, before you kind of commit to it. And a lot of degrees are flexible, but law is not necessarily- (laughs) So I think that was really smart to choose because it just to experience something for a few years before making that commitment. And yes, to treat law school like a job, it requires discipline, structure, which probably made it a little bit easier to digest.
0: What other lessons did you learn in law school? If I could do it again, I would focused even more on these aspects, I would go back and I would do it tenfold, right? You need practical experience. So you go to law school and they do not teach you how to be a lawyer. Yes, I keep hearing that. (laughs) It's all theoretical. I think that law school should be maybe a year or two theory-based and then a required, you know, apprenticeship or practical um, clinic for another year, year and a half. And you can read a case and read a decision and say, oh yeah, I know how that works. But then when you go into practice and you apply it to an individual case, it's completely different, right? And especially, you know, we always hear in law school, like a judge's discretion. Well, let me tell you, there's a lot of discretion and a lot of judges that have different opinions. So Uh (laughs) you need to really learn how to navigate that. And I mean, something as simple as how do you file a complaint, right? What's the filing fee? And, you know, I practice in Massachusetts, in Massachusetts, right? Or how do you go about serving a summons on a defendant or, you know, what have you? And I think that those aspects in law school are just kind of missed. So unless you have that practical experience, you're going to come out of law school and you're going to get into your first position and feel like a deer in headlights and just say, what the heck, (laughs) what did I spend all this time doing? If I don't even know how to do a basic uh, complaint, right? So that's really the first thing is is practical experience. And it's okay if you don't know this is the the type of law that I want to do because any practical experience in a firm is going to give you transferable skills. And you know, just learning how to interact in an office and how to conduct yourself in an office is extremely important as well. How to communicate with clients on a telephone, how to communicate with other opposing counsel. I mean, all of those skills are equally as important as the law itself. If it's a job that you can't seem to get, there's Clinics through your school or fellowships through your school that you can go and work for credit, or, you know, it's like a pro bono sort of thing through your school. So there's other ways to do it. The second tip I would say is network, you know, network, network, network. And law review is a great thing to have on your resume. Um, you know, clerkships are great to have on your resume, but making connections is so important for your success out of, you know, law school and whatever type of career that you want to do, not just in law, obviously. Yeah, that's good
1: advice in general. Yes. You know,
0: just good advice in general. And it doesn't necessarily even have to be other lawyers. It can be professional associations in your community. It can be women's organizations in your community. It can absolutely and should be a part, you know, other lawyers so that you can build kind of a referral system. But, you know, I found I in my line of work, so I do mostly obstetrical negligence, I'm communicating and networking with physical therapists, occupational therapists, um, obstetricians, nurses, you know, all of those people that I know is going to build my network of people in the type of field that I'm in and practicing in. And then the last tip I think is find a mentor. There's a lot of people that are willing to mentor you. And it's nerve wracking to reach out and say, hey, you know, this is what I'm doing, or this is what I'm up to, but it's always going to be well-received. You know, no one's going to really slam the door in your face. They might not be available or they might not be able to mentor you, but luckily I found a really great mentor throughout my law school career. And I learned so much from that individual that has helped me throughout my entire practice. And it's someone that I still feel like I can call and say, you know, I've got this case or this is something that I'm thinking about out or what's your opinion on that? Why did you choose medical malpractice? So that was kind of something that I initially fell into. So I started clerking at a firm that primarily focused on medical malpractice. And then I was assigned a lot of birth injury cases. Mm-hmm. And I worked Heavily on those cases after I, you know, I clerked for them while I was in law school. And then after I I passed the bar, I was offered a position there. And so I started as an associate at this firm and I continued to work on birth injury cases. And then I became a mom myself. It was kind of that moment where I sat back and I was able to connect with my clients in a different way than I had before, you know. I think becoming a parent is such a life-changing experience. Your brain becomes wired in a different way, right? You see the world in a completely different lens within a matter of moments. I think that that's one of the most amazing things is you go in one person, you leave a completely different person. And to be able to help someone when that first moment of becoming a parent is so traumatic Mm
1: -hmm.
0: when becoming a parent is the best and sometimes the worst day of your life, right? Because it has been, it's been such a traumatic experience, either you yourself as the mother have become permanently injured or your child and that is just an absolutely devastating thing to go through. What I found as as a mother myself and as women, you know, we put so much pressure on ourselves to protect our children. I think as a mom, the moment you become pregnant, that's the instinctual, I, I need to protect this individual, right? This baby. And so... When the birth happens and and your child gets injured, we automatically feel like the first step of parenthood, I've failed, right? I have failed to protect my child. And the first thing that I always say to my clients is, this is not your fault, right? This is not your fault. You cannot put blame on yourself for this, even though as women and as mothers and as parents, we do that because we want to do everything within our power to protect our children.
1: Yes. And they're so vulnerable in those moments. So I think it's a, an incredibly noble thing. And, and yes, I think it's difficult to not empathize or be concerned about those things, but then to understand it by being a mom. So, yeah, yes.
0: I also found that, you know, there's a lack of, kind of women in this space, as far as me being a civil litigator, number one, and number two, being a civil litigator in medical malpractice cases, you're three to four times more likely in, in civil lawsuits to begin with to have the lead counsel be male. But then we add on this medical malpractice statistics and it is, it's it's older gray haired white men. That's who you typically see in the courtrooms on these matters. And I think when it comes to birth injury, I feel very comfortable talking about birth and being that voice for my clients in front of a jury, because I'm a mom and I've, and I've, done that, right? I've been pregnant, I've birthed children, and I have a different perspective and a unique perspective that some of my opposing counsel, they don't have. And I feel very strongly and comfortable talking about that. And so that's always something that I say to my clients, I can relate to you and I can be your voice in describing what it is that you've gone through to the jury, which is ultimately what our role as trial lawyers are, right? My, my role as a trial lawyer is to be able to tell my client's story in a way to this jury so that they understand what occurred and what it is that they can do to rectify this situation.
1: As a mother, Marlia is positioned to represent her clients with empathy that comes from the shared experience of parenthood. She recently opened her own practice and here she walks us through that journey.
0: I was in a situation where I was either going to go work at another firm or bet on myself and kind of do it my way. I had one child at the time when I made this move, I knew I was going to have another child. And traditional civil litigation firms, they're not designed (laughs) for young mothers that are interested in having both a career and have children. And I realized it's just not necessary. That type of inflexibility, it's not necessary. And and we know it's not necessary because a lot of women go out and they start their own firms and they're highly successful. So we know (laughs) that that doesn't have to be the model. My husband and I talked about it and he really said to me, you're passionate about this and I believe in you. I support you. What's the worst thing that can happen, right? The worst thing that can happen is you go for work for somebody else again. And so I took the leap and I wish that I did it sooner. (laughs) The way that I work is from 5.30 to 7.30. Those are the hours for my children, right? I get up and I get out of the house and I work and I'm home by 5.30, we play games, we eat dinners together and then they go to bed and I finish whatever it is that I'm working on. If I have to wake up early and and do some work at home, that's completely fine too. And I'm hoping that after the pandemic, we've now seen, hey, people can work from home. People can work from home or, in a non-traditional way, and the work still gets done in just as an effective way. And I just think we're failing miserably for women in the in this role. Every time I go in the courtroom, I would say eight times out of 10, I'm the only female in the courtroom. You know, it's always a male uh, opposing counsel, and oftentimes it's a male judge. I'm happy that women are leaving careers that they're not satisfied in. But I think we're just doing such a disservice because we're eliminating valuable, such valuable uh, talent by not offering these policies that are just very easy to implement, you know. Paid leave without having to race back before we've even properly healed from child's birth, flexibility to work at home, sufficient pumping breaks, right? Not like, hey, run in the back room for 10 minutes and get it completed. You know, there's just so much more that we can be doing, especially in law for women.
1: I completely agree. I think uh, you opened your firm in 2020. Mm -hmm. So right in the middle of the pandemic (laughs) and what you said, I think the pandemic taught us a lot of lessons that traditional male run law firms want to like, well, we're we're going back to normal, but it added so many tools and systems that like you can be flexible without having to sacrifice efficiency (laughs) or things like Zoom where you don't have to take into consideration like travel time to meet a client or trying to match up schedules and things like that. You can meet face-to-face with them and accomplish all of that in in 20 minutes. What took two hours now takes 20 minutes. Right, absolutely. I think just the way that we measure work in general by these like weird times, 7 a.m. to 7 p.m., sometimes later, when if you can get the job done in like half of that time... Why wouldn't you? I think that, yeah, we punish people for being efficient because we still expect them to put in so many additional hours, which doesn't make any sense. And I, I completely agree. Like um, you have women turning away from leadership positions that, and they're so necessary for them to be there simply because of, of these sort of archaic expectations of what work should look like. I'm hopeful we're rounding a corner
0: the other thing that i will say about doing my own thing is that i've been able to speak up and ask for accommodations i think that sometimes when we're in a political firm or a firm that feels political you know we get uh discouraged by you know asserting ourselves or saying oh i need this or can i have that but i have found that You know, if you do ask, sometimes that's all that needed to be done. They didn't think of it or they didn't, you know, realize it. And some people are more comfortable asking for those accommodations than not. But my daughter was five months old when I tried my first case after she was born. And I was in a courthouse that there was at that point had not yet had a lead female attorney that was nursing. And so I specifically had to ask them, hey, is there a room where I can pump? And I'm going to need at least 20 minutes every three hours throughout the trial to pump. And they were so accommodating that the judge <laughs> the judge actually gave me a key and I pumped in his chambers (laughs) for eight days, every three hours, he gave me 20 minutes, every three hours. And there was no discussion about, you know, that he just said that, oh, we're taking a break and the jury was taken out and nobody, it, it was fine. And I think that that was just a, a wonderful um, thing. And, and I've since tried two other cases. Um, I've tried one pregnant. I've tried two more breastfeeding. And every single time I've done that, I've been able to speak up and get the accommodations that I've needed. And I think that that's just such a great move in the right direction. Whereas, you know, 10 years ago, it might have been different or you, there might have been pushback. And I'm not saying that it's perfect. Obviously, we still have a long way to go. But I just hope that by talking about that or telling other female litigators through this podcast that, yeah, I've asked for it and they've been very accommodating. And it, guess what? It weren't off and everybody was fine. Nobody was worse yeah. off <laughs> for doing it.
1: maternal morbidity remains inexcusably high in the United States. A 2018 report from the Commonwealth Fund notes that among 11 high-income countries, American women have the greatest risk of dying from pregnancy complications. I asked Marley how she sees gender bias playing out in the cases that she represents.
0: I see it across the board for women in general, but specifically with um, women of color and of lower socioeconomic class. So we know in medical malpractice that one of the key risk factors for being a victim of negligence is clinical assessment by a provider. Okay. So that means somebody that the provider going in and assessing that patient and being able to use their clinical judgment to say, okay, this is what we need to do for this, for this patient. And so what happens with women of color and women of lower socioeconomic class we are not listening to them. Mm -hmm. So they're going to these providers and the providers are giving them assessments and they're saying, Hey, I'm concerned about this, or I'm worried about this. And they're being brushed off. So there's a lack of communication and really just listening. And then there's also you know, the availability of proper healthcare to these women. And we know, especially with the mortality rate in women of color, I mean, that applies to educated women, that applies across the board. And so we know that they're not listening to these patients and we know that they're not spending the time to assess them properly and they're brushing them off. When it comes to birth and obstetrical negligence, we are not giving women the information that they need and the support that they need to make informed decisions about their health care. And it's really simple, small mistakes that are costing women their lives, literally, as you can see by our mortality rate, but then also causing severe, severe injuries to themselves and their children. So I think it's a it's a major breakdown of communication and a breakdown of the assessment of these patients and listening to these patients and doing the proper testing and care that they deserve and that they need. Three to five of these deaths that are occurring are actually preventable. And it's either, you know, from this assessment or this judgment that they're not getting. It's from lack of follow-up, lack of the accessibility to healthcare for these women. You know, we're one of the only countries where there's only one postpartum visit six weeks, right? And we know that the bulk of these incidents are re- are occurring during that time. We don't have at-home care. We don't have at-home visits. Um, and we don't have the proper insurance to make sure that these women who are at high risk are being caught at the time where it can be prevented.
1: I feel like when it's known that the the United States really struggles and it's always like, oh, what can be done about that? And I feel like you just laid out a very obvious explanation. What's the path forward look like? What can an attorney do?
0: I think that our continual representation of these people is integral and important. And I think it's also by holding these medical providers accountable and the institutions accountable. I think that that's a huge thing, but it also requires us to kind of go in and discuss other ways that we can put these policies into place so that they actually occur, right? So there's policies and procedures that are in place at these hospitals, and then they're not even being followed. So it's not enough to just Put the policy in place, we need to actually be following them. And I think that that's kind of one of the biggest things that we need to bring attention to. And then this attitude of them versus us. And, you know, a lot of medical malpractice attorneys kind of take that position where it's like, you know, we're. Fighting against this machine and, and what have you. And I definitely am in that I, it, when I'm advocating for my clients, but at a certain level, I'm like, we need to be working together, right? Because yes. my, my main job is not only to advocate for the women and the children and the families that have suffered from obstetrical negligence, but I really want to prevent it in the future. You know, there's always going to be situations where there's, negligence. Medical errors occur. It just is going to happen no matter what we do about it. So I'm not worried, right, that I'm not going to have any cases or I'm not going to be able to do my job. We need to be working together. And I think that everyone wants to point the finger, right? And it's like, well, is it the chicken or the egg, right? Well, if you stop suing us, then we'd be able to give proper care. And then, and we're like, well, if you gave proper care, we'd be, stop suing us. And I think that there is a definitely, especially in the obstetrical world, this vicious cycle that's happening. But I just really wish that in general, not just in you know obstetrics, but in, Child rearing and obstetrics, we start listening to our mothers because they're telling these people. So I have clients come to my office and say, I went in and I said I was experiencing these symptoms, or I went in and I said that, you know, I didn't think that my baby was moving enough, or, or whatever it is. They you know, a woman's intuition, a mother's intuition starts before the baby's even born, you know, and that's what I always say to future mothers. If you have a gut feeling and a doctor brushes you off, you should just let that go, right? If you have a, a gut feeling, make sure that you're being heard. And if you feel as though they're being dismissed, find a second opinion. I feel like a lot of, women get nervous about, okay, if I go to get a second opinion, they're going to be mad or whatever. Who cares, right? Get, get a second opinion. Do what you got to do. Exactly. And there's no fault in that or, or shame or or any reason why you can't get a second opinion. Maybe the second opinion is exactly what the first one was. And then you're reassured and you feel good about it. Yes.
1: You mentioned women of color. Can you talk about the compounding problem of racial disparity, and medical malpractice?
0: I think it just kind of what I had touched on before was this lack of accessibility to proper healthcare, number one. It's not listening to them when they're literally telling these providers, this is what's going on. The systemic racism in the medical world that's even unconscious, right? I'm not even saying that these providers are doing it, but I did a really interesting kind of study where I was talking to lawyers and students and I I had, you know, seven obstetrical textbooks in front of me. So I had, you know, three obstetrical textbooks, then I had neurology books. And I said, flip through these pages and tell me if any of the medical illustrations are people of color, not one, there was not one. So that's something that a medical student might not even realize is occurring, right? There ingesting all of this information and they're ingesting it in a kind of racially biased way and they don't even know that it's happening. So then they get into practice and, you know, I just think that that just being more aware of it and and putting these illustrations and discussions in the medical textbooks themselves even is a start. So that's just something that that I found to be very interesting. Whereas I don't know how many people, even who aren't medical students, would know that about illustrations. Yes. Uh implicit biasness. There was a
1: diagram of a person of color and it went viral on Twitter because so many people were like, I have never seen something like this before. Right. So I think just for people to be aware that they've never seen something like that before, that awareness is I think provides a path forward. According to the Illinois Department of Public Health from 2008 to 2016, each year an average of 73 Illinois women died within one year of pregnancy. Of those deaths, 72% were considered preventable by review committees. Numbers like these feel inexcusable. What is being done in the legal sector to help make that right?
0: So, I mean, that's more a, a legislative question. So I really, unfortunately, I don't have specific answers for that other than I am the person that gets that case afterwards, unfortunately. Right. So I'm more on the back end of that fighting the occurrence of it versus, you know, how do we prevent it? But I know that there's um, the acts that are being discussed right now in legislature to try and catch more of these women and how to implement these policies and ways that we can catch them before that occurs. I know that that's definitely taking place and it has to. And I think what I was saying before is it's just not enough that we have the policy in place. Because again, I get the case afterwards where I see, okay, there are policies and they're not being followed, right? Or there's policies, no one's enforcing them, or they're being overridden by somebody at the hospital, and then it's still occurring. The legislation is great, but it's also putting that into practice. And then putting it into practice in rural areas where the bulk of these incidents are occurring. And I think that that's kind of something else that needs to be discussed because, you know, I practice in Boston. You know, Mm -hmm. maternal health care in Boston is very, very different than the health care in a lot of rural communities that I travel to to represent some of these women. And so I think that it's really getting to identify, okay, where is this most occurring and where are we falling short from it?
1: Yes. On your Instagram post, it says that across 4,000 doctors, 71% said that medical malpractice cases did not affect their career. What is the ultimate goal of winning cases?
0: So the ultimate goal for me, for any of my clients is providing them with the compensation that they need to be able to get the care that they are going to have to have through the remainder of their life and then for the pain and suffering that they've endured. And it's, it's a horrible way to look at it, right? Because we don't, we essentially have to monetize this. And it's, it's a horrible way to look at it from my client's perspective, because There's no amount of money that would make these individuals whole again. It just isn't going to happen. But that's what our judicial system has to offer them. And that's the only way that we can do it. And I think that by having, it's interesting to me, you know, getting the compensation that they need is obviously extremely important. You know, we have life care planners, we've got adaptive equipment for homes and things that they're going to need for the rest of their life. But, you know, I hear time and time again from these parents, I just don't want this to happen to somebody else. I hear that all the time. I want to hold them accountable because I don't want this to happen to anybody else. I don't want anyone else's child or anyone else's mother, wife, whoever it is, to go through what it is that we went through. So it's really for them, I would say, from my client's perspective, it's being their voice, holding these individuals accountable so that it doesn't happen again is always one of the very first things that they say to me, and then of course the compensation for everything, obviously, that I don't even need to, everybody knows, right, is secondary. I think
1: what we're kind of circling is can mal cases change the way that medicine is practiced? You talked about being like on the back end, you're at the result of this, but if you're good enough at your job <laughs> and these things are thorough can that influence the way medicine's practiced
0: i sure hope so i sure hope so i mean i'm we're telling them i mean any plaintiff's attorney that does this is telling these hospitals it's telling these doctors we're we're showing them we're coming to them and saying this is where we're making mistakes mm-hmm. you know whether or not what they do with that information I don't know. I can't necessarily say that. I mean, I do know that they pay very close attention to verdicts and settlements and what's happening. And they do report. I mean, CRICO does an annual or they just did a 10-year report on medical malpractice and why they're occurring and how their things can be changed. But we can't force them to implement it. They have to do it themselves. But we're, we're certainly telling them what they should be doing and and showing them the effect. And I think my Medscape post about asking those doctors, it's really powerful because, you know, 71% said that the medical malpractice lawsuit did not affect their overall career. Yeah. You know, a hundred percent of patients that suffered from medical malpractice say, yeah, it affected my entire life, not just my career. So I think that it's kind of that statistic sort of speaks for itself for sure.
1: I agree. Yeah, I think it's almost overwhelm the industry, you know, right? (laughs) Um, make them pay attention. When it comes to medical malpractice and birth injuries, are there any misconceptions that you wish potential clients knew about?
0: I think there's a misconception currently in our judicial system about how we properly address the mental trauma that occurs for these parents. I don't believe that right now we properly compensate them um, for what it is that they go through trauma wise. You know, these cases are extremely, extremely difficult to prove. They're also extremely expensive. And so you know, unless there's substantial and significant physical damage, it's very difficult for me to take a case where families have undergone extreme mental distress and mental trauma and say to them, you know, we're going to have a hard time proving your case, or we're going to have a hard time bringing this case forward. And I think that that, that breaks my heart because in a lot of these situations, it's really a lot of this is mental. It's the mental trauma that they've undergone is sometimes more difficult than recovering from the physical trauma or being able to adapt with the physical trauma. It's this mental, you know, reliving of what occurred on a daily basis, the anxiety, the, um, the stress, the everything that comes along with that. And so that's hard for me to explain to a client. It's very difficult for me to explain to a client
1: and much of women's labor is unpaid. So how how do you you have a mental trauma and then you have to relate that when you can't point to a salary for like a potential loss wage? Are there ways to demonstrate economic damages, you know, for women who are experiencing prolonged mental trauma and their wages were unpaid. Like you can't even point to that. Are there ways to demonstrate that?
0: Yeah. I mean, I think that if they did at some point hold a position or they had a position, lost wages, we certainly can recover from. And then there is, you know, there are certain states that allow us to bring claims for the mental stress and loss of consortium for a child's injury. Um, And that, you know, is sometimes capped at a non-economic amount. But I think that if we have the evidence that this has caused significant, you know mental trauma in a family's life. I think that that's a jury understands what that's going to look like, and they're going to be able to compensate them for that pr- appropriately if they find that it was due to the negligence. Yes. What non-economic damages can be recovered? So, you know, you've got lost wages, you have future medical bills, you have past medical bills, you have life care plans, you have vocational experts, which will come and say the future employability of this individual or this child, what that's going to look like. And then we have economic experts that come in and they put dollar values on that number for the next however many years, right? So we know that this is a permanent injury. We know that this injury is going to go throughout the span of this individual's life. So if that's X amount every year through this life care plan that we know they're going to need physical therapies, occupational therapies, adaptive equipment, uh, medical wow. surgeries, I mean, the list goes on, right. Um, everything you can possibly imagine. A lot of families need new homes. If they have a child that has Mm -hmm. suffered severe brain damage as a result of their delivery, you know, they need homes that are accessible and they need vehicles that are accessible. They need to get their child to appointments. So it's where do they live? How long of a trip is it to the closest clinic that can treat them for this specific injury, right? All of those go into non-economic damages. And then again, once we have all of those in this life care plan, we have all of those through experts that come in and testify that this medical treatment is going to be necessary and appropriate, then the economist says, okay, that's what this is worth throughout their entire life. Okay. Wow. It's incredible. It's definitely a process, which is why it's so important. You know, these are very complex cases and they can take. I think the other thing you had asked me about potential clients and what I can tell them about medical malpractice cases in general is that, you know, these cases can take years Just because there's so much that goes into them and there's so much work on the back end with experts where, you know, a client, they won't even really have too much to do with that. So there'll be, you know, a year of of expert work and they're like, are you even working on the case? And yes, it, it can take a very long time for these to start and then resolve. That's frustrating too. When I, you know, meet a child client that's months old. And then by the time we resolve the case, you know, it's it's a four-year-old and they're getting ready to go off to kindergarten. One of the best things I think for me is when I get a photograph from a client and, you know, the child's off to high school or, mm-hmm. you know, has made this other milestone and I see them and I think, wow, you know, it's just amazing to me. Not only the resilience of these children, but their families. Yes.
1: And you spend a lot of time with them. You said years, you see them as little babies and then yeah, send them off to kindergarten. So fighting for parents and children on a daily basis is exhausting and you're a mom.
0: (laughs) So what do you do to recalibrate de-stress? I think that that's really important. And I think that that's something that a lot of trial lawyers in general, personal injury lawyers, uh, medical malpractice lawyers, we're reliving trauma, right? Every day for a career. And so we're subjected to these micro traumas and it affects us. Absolutely. And I'm so close in my current life state with having little children that it does. It's very exhausting. And so I have to focus a lot on movement exercise, even if it's a walk at the end of the day, getting light and sun and, you know, it can be difficult to do in in Boston, but even if it's 15 to 20 minutes a day of direct sunlight on my skin in some capacity, Mm -hmm. that is extremely helpful. And then, um, you know, meditating and participating in things that bring you joy, I think are so, so, so important. And then the last thing that I think is really beneficial is journaling. Mm -hmm. So if there's a situation that I find extremely difficult, like there was a deposition that I did when I was 37 weeks pregnant And it was a situation where it was a loss of a baby, right? Full-term baby that they lost the baby. After that, I was extremely upset, obviously, after a five-hour deposition discussing that and being about to give birth myself. So, you know, you have to journal. You have to get that out on paper or talk to somebody else about it and kind of write it out.
1: Marley may not look like a typical metal metal malpractice litigator, but she fights day in and day out, having created the practice that suits your own lifestyle. Know that your needs are valid, and as the legal landscape shifts, identify if your needs are being met. Are there places where you can make changes to better fit your life and still be a tenacious advocate? If you don't ask, the answer is always going to be no. A huge thank you to Marley for sharing her story and unbelievable insights with us today. You've been listening to Laher with me, Sonia Palmer. If you found this content insightful, inspiring, or just made you smile, please share this episode with a trailblazer in your life. For more about Marley Weiler, check out our show notes. And while you're there, please leave us a review or a five-star rating. It really goes a long way for others to discover the show. And I will see you next week on Laher, where we'll shed light on how another of the brightest and boldest women in the legal industry climbed to the top of her field.